Take two. It's Kandashow's okay. Beatle Revolution. One, two, three, four. On iHeartRadio. Hello. Hello. Testing. One, two, one, two. Beatles Revolution number 43. We're going back to the bird. Huh? What? Well, we had two wings on a couple of weeks ago. Originally co-founder Denny Lane and original drummer Denny Sywell. So in town this week was the last guitarist for Wings, Lawrence Juber. And we'll talk Wings with Lawrence. And we'll talk mostly, though, about what he says, because he was this amazing session guitarist in all the studios. That's what he does now in Los Angeles. All the TV shows from the 80s on, the Home Improvement and all those, whenever you hear that guitar going, that's Lawrence, and that's a fine living. But he said when he joined Wings, that's when he graduated from McCartney University. I wanted to explain exactly what he means. Not just how to play and tour, but Song Construct, we're going to dig into how you write a hit song, what he learned from this guy named Paul McCartney. If you're going to learn how to write a song, be in a band with Paul McCartney. Learn the songs he's written. Watch how he writes them. That should do just fine. And lots of historic events. Here we are as we head to June of the Beatles. First of all, they begin recording the White Album. When you think how tight the connection was between John and Paul from the from day one when they meet at the church fed, 15-year-old Paul, 16-year-old Lennon, boom, they're in each other's you know, closet, writing songs every minute, every day. One starts a song, the other finishes it. One brings in a complete song, the other one says, how about putting this in it? You know, it's perfect. Suddenly, 68, it's John and Yoko. Not that he's married to her, she's in the studio with him. Suddenly, she's offering opinions on what the Beatles should do. They listen to a playback, and Yoko would say, Beatles do this, Beatles do that. I assure you, that didn't go over well with George and Paul, or Ringo. It's awkward. John knows it's awkward. Everybody blames Yoko for it. And what I always say is, if I hit you with a hammer, you're really going to blame the hammer for hurting you? I mean, John could have simply said, Mother, why don't you wait outside while we do this? You know, be John and Yoko in your side project, but you have to respect the integrity of the Beatles if you want to be in the Beatles. John did not want to be in the Beatles. As we had mentioned a while back, Paul quits the Beatles. But months earlier, John had walked in and said to the boys, I want a divorce. And that was it. And on we go. He wanted out. John wanted out. And they said during these sessions, that's why the White Album is this double album and it sounds kind of disjointed, you could cut the tension with a knife because the connection between John and Paul had been broken. You can't have Paul, John, and Yoko. It's John and Paul. That's how it was since they first met in 58. That's how it had to be if there was going to be a Beatles. You know, you don't have Paul and Linda and John and Yoko. You can go out to dinner like that, but you can't write songs. So here's John in one studio recording your blues with Ringo. Here's Paul in the other studio recording Mother Nature's Son and John glaring at him. And, you know, John recording Revolution Number 9 just to try to screw up the album and not have a hit. It, boy, it's just going down such a bad road. But we will get to those points and others in upcoming Beatles podcast. Today, it's all about the last wing. Lawrence Juber coming up on Ken Dashow's Beatles Revolution. We've had two wings so far, Denny and Denny. Denny Lane and Denny Sywell. There's a third wing. It's the strangest bird you've ever seen <laughs> with three wings on it. A mutant bird. Yes. 
uh, the last guitarist in Wings, Lawrence Juber, joins us. Thank you so much for stopping in. Last guitarist standing. <laughs> yeah. Lawrence had the honor, and I say that in italics and quotes, to be standing next to Mr. McCartney at the airport in Japan when they opened his luggage and there was a large bag of Mother Nature sitting on top of yeah, the Yeah, it was a, a substantial agricultural issue. When you say substantial, um, an sandwich ounce. bag, an ounce? an ounce? Yeah. But now remember, this is 1980, where the THC content was a fraction of what it is today. So uh, that would have lasted probably about a week. <laughs> did, did he not think that there might be some weed in somewhere in Japan? That it, it was indeed thought about and... Discussed been, and yeah, but it was not. It was um, sitting on top, right? It was. Yeah, it was underneath the jacket. It had not been packed particularly carefully. Carefully, yeah. <laughs> we will leave it at that. <laughs> and that it's weird, but that pretty much ended wings. Well, we kept going for another year. Did you? Yeah, um, I mean, we had you know, post that there was coming up was you know number one in June of that year. And when so did this happen? One record. This was January. And so I didn't chew coming up. Yeah, and then we were rehearsing material for Tug of War. Uh, we were still active in January of 81, uh, working on what was called Cold Cuts at the time, which was you know, a lot of outtake stuff. Um, and then I came to New York at the end of, end of January. Um, and Denny officially left in April. So Wings officially folded. When Denny Lane left? April 27th. Why did Denny leave? I think because the band, it was no longer a band. And, you know, I, th I think for me, part of it is to understand how much Linda was integral to Wings. You know, people say that all the time, like, why doesn't he redo Wings? Why doesn't he get back together and do a re Wings reduction? You've you always said it without you can't. Linda. Because there are jokes and things we've heard, the outtakes, and Linda can't sing. Yeah, that's but, not, yeah but that's not really truly fair to her talents, because she could sing. Really? Well, I mean, you only have to listen to, you know, listen to Ram. Yeah, the harmonies. Listen to all those stacked harmonies with Paul, Linda, and Danny silly love songs you know I mean that sound was as much a characteristic of 70s radio as the Carpenters stacked harmonies as the Bee Gees harmonies as Abba's harmonies I mean it was she was part of that and I I would say more musical and with a better awareness of it all than some other perhaps more celebrated singers so but if you can't hear yourself in the monitors, right? You can't. You have you, no chance. You don't know. You don't know where your pitch basis is. I mean, it's that simple. And you know, she grew up around music, right? You know, dad. She, dad mean, was a music biz attorney. He, he was the music biz attorney, and you know, there there were composers coming over to the house all the time, and you know, people wrote songs about her, and she, she it, it was it was just part of who she was, and I think that Paul recognized that that couple aspect of it was an important step beyond the Beatles because you know in the Beatles it was there was the John Paul kind of love right rivalry thing going on and and I think that it was it helped Paul to get out of the the kind of the trough that he fell into 
after the Beatles. Oh, oh without and a doubt. Lin- Linda was, was essential to that. Right. Maybe I'm amazed. You know, I'm a man going through something I really don't understand. Yeah. And I, yeah, I got it. The greatest group in the world just broke up in yeah. front of my eyes. I lost John. As they always said about Yoko, we, we're glad he's in love, but does he have to be with her every single minute? Um, you know, they always said the Beatle wives knew when to leave. When it was time to work, we'll leave. And John forced, did John force Yoko to be there? Did Yoko want to be there? As I've always defended her and said, if I hit you with a hammer, blaming the hammer for hurting you seems ridiculous. Like mm-hmm. John used her as a crowbar to me to pry his way out of the Beatles. And yet, my producer Andrew, who works with me, said, you know, you're still an adult human being. You're not a child. You could say, hey, this is your thing. I'll When we record, you know, our own Utopian National Anthem, that'll be us. This is a Beatle thing. I'll lay out. I'll leave with Linda. Mm-hmm. And what Roger Daltrey, I, I talked to him about Linda because I guess he was a big fan. Mm-hmm. And he said, A, she took great pictures, and B, she knew how to hang. She did know and how to hang. And that's a generic thing, like, but. But that's a really important part of it. And I see that, like my daughter Ilse, who's. Her a daughter, great his daughter is a fantastic song. All the pop songs that you hear, if, if in short, like Rhiannon and Mariah Carey and the Miley Cyrus and all these people, just, she writes for them. Yeah, she, just look at Ilse Juba's Wikipedia page <laughs> and you'll see. But but part of what worked for her when she was growing up, she was the only girl on the the little league team. You know, she knew how to hang with the guys. Yeah, and because the music business. The, the, the production side of it is mostly guy-driven, not exclusively. I mean, there have been some very successful women in, in that end of the business, but being able to hang with the guys is, is, a, is a, an essential attribute. Right. It's okay to tell jokes around Linda. It's okay to behave naughty around Linda, and it stays <laughs> in the room. And it's a it's a big thing. She and she's not running back to Paul to tell stories out of school. And I think also because she it wasn't like she was a diva. Yeah. And it wasn't like she had ambitions as an instrumentalist to, you know, to make a mark. She was Paul's wife and his soulmate and and they had this couple consciousness, which I understand cuz hope my wife and I operate in a very similar way where we like to work together and we do as much as we can um, and so having her in the band was a way of keeping the family very integrated but by the end of the 70s you know she's now has four kids you know I joined yeah. the band when James was a baby he's not less than a year old and with four kids and then John Lennon is assassinated and it's like that's a whole other kind of pressure. Do do you really want to go out on the road when there's mad gunmen out there looking to take down the beetle? You know, it's like oh, they didn't tour again until what eighty eight, eighty nine. You know, I never thought of it in that, those terms, but you're right. It... And, and Paul was turning forty, which was a milestone birthday, and and you know the kids they wanted the kids settled in school. They had moved out of London down to Peasmarsh down in Sussex and were creating a different kind of work ethic and a different kind of environment 
They wanted you know? a home environment. We're not yeah, on the bus. It was, it was the family. Um, and it made sense. You know, and, and I could see that coming. I mean, I knew that the, the wings had a limited lifespan. Yeah. And, and, and I think Paul did and Paul Danny... Did Paul knew too? Oh, yeah, I think so. I think he's kind of talked about subconsciously, you know, being... Um, realizing that it was coming to an end. And I, I think that Paul and Denny didn't have the same creative interplay that they had maybe had earlier on. Um, so... It was just a natural progression, you know. The, the wings was wings was part of the seventies. Very, yeah, very and, much so. And, it, and it, once you got into the eighties, it was, you know, and that's where coming up was the swan song. But what was interesting with coming up was the dichotomy between Paul having done his McCartney two version of it, the kind of like, you know, slightly crazy tech mm -hmm. version of it, and and the the rock kind of dance track that. The live version was, which was the one that was the hit. The live version of it, the one that they re-released with you in Glasgow, that right. absolutely rocks. I mean, that is a yeah. rock. And Paul's just, you know, in his rock mode. Yeah. And radio loved that kind of thing. They didn't like the one that he did the video for that was premiered on Saturday Night Live. Yeah. And it just was, it wasn't until they flipped the record over and discovered the live, there was a live version. version, and that was like instant. And I remember when I got to New York, and the Campuchia album came out. Right. And the what was getting airplay was Lucille. Yeah. Again, Paul in you know full rock mode because Paul the rocker just you know has has um, it's and, above and, and still, beyond. Still yes. would have that place on radio because it's it's a core of of him. My little lady. Yeah, he, you know, going back to his little Richard roots, yeah. he could do that better than anybody. He yeah, just yeah. knocked it out. Um, so this comes back around to Wings when Denny was inducted mm -hmm. into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame with the Moody Blues, and he was asked in Cleveland, "Do you think that Wings should go into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame?" And he said, "No. Why? We were just Paul's band." And Denny Sywell, the original drummer, said, "No. We rode in the van with him. We, we." drove the bus, we had our hands on the faders at five in the morning, we made suggestions, I think we should. And my argument for the yes is, well, Eric Clapton's in three times. The Yardbirds, uh, Cream, mm -hmm. and his Clapton. You could have just put him in his Clapton and said, well, that covers Yardbirds and Delaney and Bonnie yeah. and Blind Faith and Derek and the Dominos. But those are three distinct sounds of Clapton's career. And I love Blind Faith, but it's a one-off. I love Derek and the Dominoes. We still play it every day, but it's a one-off. But Wings, as you said, is is Paul's band. It's a band of post-Beatles in the 70s that was a creative energy of a group of people. He didn't call it Paul McCartney's Wings. It was just Wings. Well, certainly Back to the Egg was credited as Wings, yeah, not as Paul McCartney. I have mixed feelings about it. Because I know that that they when Paul was inducted on his own, I mean, that coincided with Linda's death, and I think that that was kind of a trigger for that. Because I don't think that they were intending to induct him. At really? That point. Yeah, I'm not sure. I can't ver verify that, but I I just don't know. I mean, yes, I think that your argument is sound, and I think that Wings occupies a very specific spot 
in in music history, um, and it would be very cool for it for for the band to be inducted. But I'm I wouldn't hold your breath. <laughs> the interesting thing about Wings here are all these bands that I love. Deep Purple, they were my Van Halen. Mm-hmm. Every bootleg, every right. yeah. live concert. Richie Blackmore, who wrote all these definitive rock riffs and songs in the 70s. Machine Head, responsible mm-hmm. for every 80s hard rock band in the world. <laughs> Def Leppard, everybody says we don't exist. Guns N' Roses, we don't exist without Machine Head. Deep Purple gets inducted. They tell Richie Blackmore, don't come. He goes, that's all right, I wasn't coming anyway. Mark, Mark Knopfler, one of my favorite guitarists in the world. There's you, you, Clapton, David Gilmour, Mark Knopfler. That, that's my... You know, on my top shelf. Fine company to be in. Dire Straits, going to Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Nah, I don't feel like it. What do you mean you don't feel like it? It's for the fans. It's not for you. It's for your fans, for you to say, thank you, fans. That's all it is. Mm -hmm. You don't come. Wings is the only crazy band where everybody gets along. I have never before heard in my life where drummer A and drummer B hang out. When Danny Sewell was in town, he had dinner at Steve Holly's house. And whenever they do a gig, Danny Lane said to me, you show up and they have two drummers Mm -hmm. and whoever's around who was ever a wing, just show (laughs) up and play. The wingmen. Right, I mean, you're the only band where everybody actually stays in touch, gets Mm -hmm. along and enjoys each other. So it's not impossible. (laughs) No, it's certainly not impossible. Um, But it's just, I don't know. I, I just, you know, you can't really quantify right. that kind of thing because the the internal workings of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, I think, have you know. Are, yeah, there's a uh, lot of weird physics, but mysterious thing. Yeah, but hey, you know, we know people. But, we, you know, we know but, a guy. There's a guy I know. He's got a, like a schmutz on his head. You know, he's got a lot of pull in that place. So you know, <laughs> I don't know. I, whatever. I mean, talk to what him. encapsulated it for me was. Fleetwood Mac are inducted. Right. And Peter Green is playing with Carlos Santana. <laughs> right. Peter Green, who started, who started Fleetwood Mac. Well, was, was integral the, to, right. the, to the original band. I mean, yeah, you know, of course, it was always Mick Fleetwood and John McVie. But Peter Green was the sound, the voice of Fleetwood Mac for that whole first era. Right. When you hear Santana's Black Magic Woman, that's Peter Green's yeah. Black Magic Woman that they made the definitive hit of, I'm not saying. But how much of even what Carlos was playing on guitar was was channeling Peter Green. Oh, yeah. without a yeah. doubt. Without a doubt. I'm talking but with, that's a whole other discussion. <laughs> <laughs> talking with Lawrence Juber uh, of Wings, who's been on a solo tour, um, and he, he's just played at the cutting room. And are you out? For an extended period of time, no, you just, just do small just, uh, hits, I and then, do, I only do like four or five dates in a row now, and then back back to Los Angeles, back to, back to Studio City. Yeah. <laughs> um, one of the things you've always said to me when we talked is you've always been an amazing player. He is Lawrence is simply the finest finger pl- picker. I don't know what the term is, fing- finger style, finger yeah. style guitarist I've ever seen who plays the melody with his left hand on the <laughs> neck of the guitar. And it just, it, to me, it always looks like a magic trick. I first saw Stanley <laughs> Jordan do it, that you could press on the string and play it at the same time. 
Yeah, it's I, it's. A, I don't it's really a know how that mm-hmm. that that's that seems like there must be a guy off stage actually <laughs> doing it. There must be someone else. Like I come up close and see you go. Is there anybody else? No, no. It's just no. so There's it's no man behind the because it sounds like two people playing guitar at mm-hmm. the same time. Your thumb is playing a rhythm. Your 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 pinky and your ring finger are playing something else, <laughs> and just the concentration of it yeah. is unbelievable. And then when you cover you know Beatles or McCartney stuff and not just not Blackbird or Yesterday you know the one I always play on the air is your I Am The Walrus and little Stephen was absolutely stupefied as you started I said do you ever see this he said no I said don't miss this he goes how are you going to do I Am The Walrus on a guitar I said watch (laughs) and you do the entire song you do every element Mm -hmm. all the dynamics of the song that guitar is a rock band and I don't mean you just play it loud the dynamics that you get out of an acoustic guitar physically hitting the instrument is unbelievable and I mean it speaks to your talent and your presence of mind I don't think you can teach that you can you have that or you don't you can refine it but you can do it or you don't what really struck me last time I saw you play was live and let die Mm -hmm. and I think for John and Paul all this time it's they would take pieces of songs everybody else would write a song um goldfinger is one song mm-hmm. chorus verse chorus verse some mm-hmm. horns chorus verse nobody does it better carly simon beautiful ballad a ballad nice i played song. on that you're on that <laughs> i now, didn't know i was on it I, <laughs> I, I am on it and then think about live and let die for a minute here's this ballad part and then just this quick sort of minor key da 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 Live and let die. The all hell breaks loose. Right. Screaming violin, shrieky psycho violins, flutes, Pickles, goes violins, nuts. Yeah. Back to a ballad, and then the bridge that I believe Linda wrote. Right? What does it matter to I, you? I, that I'm not sure. I think about. she wrote. What does it matter to you when you got a job to do? That's straight Beatles. Paul's English musical. You know, da 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 da. Hey, ba da da and. He's, his mindset, and John's too, when, where do you want to start? A Day in the Life, Pepper, the medleys, every little part of it. Uh, we're in this psychedelic dream. I'd love to turn you on. Alarm clock. Oh, here's a here's Paul's song in the middle. Yeah. How does that happen? Why, how do you construct a song made out of four disparate parts and somehow it works for the Beatles and like nobody else has been able to follow that path? <laughs> um. Well, let me let me back up a little bit because you know I I always refer to working with Paul as being at McCartney University. I love that line. And, Tell me know, what I, that I, is. I had well, I had been London University. I got my degree in music. I didn't study guitar. I studied music and musicology. So I I have an understanding of structure and all the 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 intricacies of music, the stuff of music. And, you know, song form, as we have grown to know it, especially in pop music where you have, you know, uh, you have the verse, you have the, the pre-chorus, the chorus, right. the middle eight, you know, that traditional song form. Uh, and that form has changed over the years. And, and you know, there, there's, there's a, a traditional classical form called rondo form where you have like an A section and then a B and then it repeat the A and then a C section and it's like you keep coming back to the A section but in between you have other sections. That's what Genesis called it abacab. 
A, B, A, C. Yeah. Yeah. And but it, when, when structure meets necessity, when you have a song to write or you have an album side to complete and you have fragments and you look to those fragments and you say, how do these, any of these fit together? Because within the creative process, there's, there's a, a, a continuum where sometimes you have ideas, but you don't necessarily know how those ideas fit together. And sometimes they'll fit together organically. And other times it'll be, oh, well, you've got this and you've got this. Like again and again and again on Back to the Act, Dennis' song. Yeah. He had two separate songs. He had the, the um, kind of the, the slower, the, like the verse section, and he had the chorus section, and they were really different. And Paul said, let's put them together. <laughs> uh, you put them together and you get a complete song. And, and it, it works organically. Uh, there was an outtake from, from Egg, um, a song called Cage, Emotional Moments, I'm Locked in a Cage, which, and the cage was C-A-G-E. Oh, okay. The chords of the riff. Um, kind of like Badge, you know. The right. Cream's Badge was, was Ringo misreading Bridge. Right. <laughs> um, and there are various sections in that. There's this kind of big ballad, kind of, which could have been a standalone song. But then there's this kind of slightly punky riff, and then there's a section in the middle where we were all blowing over whiskey bottles to get <laughs> drunk and to create kind of a calliope effect. I mean, we were literally recording, you know, blowing over the top of a whiskey bottle. <laughs> um, but it was it was assembled, and and that one maybe didn't work as organically as other ones might have, which is why it didn't end up on the album, even though the the elements of it, there were some very cool elements of it, and it's interesting to listen to, but in that creative space, it didn't quite fit. But you can put anything together if it makes sense. But I guess that's what it was about their mindset, their musical intelligence, was not just writing and lyricism, but their their intelligence, their their daring do of song construct mm -hmm. before there was Pro Tools, before you punch something in. Well, Let's cut up some tape. Yeah, she's a razor blade. Yeah. And throw it on the floor, paste it together any which way. Well, David Bowie would do that with lyrics. Really? That he would just, you know, chop up all the words and throw them up in the air and, and see how they reassemble. You know, it's an, oh. it, what they call aleatoric in... in um, in classical composition is when it's you you introduce random elements because when you are when you're operating on a creative plane improvisation randomness that kind of thing can break you out of the norm i remember lowell cream from 10cc saying that you know sometimes they will walk into a studio wearing a blindfold <laughs> and and just whatever the first instrument they would pick up and that would be what they would do. Paul, you know, with Paperback Writer, he, his assignment to himself was he would write a song about the first thing he saw and the first thing he saw was a paperback book, so he wrote a song about writing one. Well, anybody could do that. It's just that the song that comes out well, is Paperback yeah. Writer yeah. versus, oh, I saw a paperback, it was laying on a table. Right. That's, the difference is, but the genius to go along with the ability to write songs, to me, is not just the inspiration, but, you know, Paul always said, John put the tape on the wrong side. He picked it up off the floor and threaded it backwards. And you hear it backwards, you know, 100,000 people go, oh, 
damn, it's backwards, and take it off. These guys go, well, that's cool. Let's yeah. use that. Oh, I, I was doing a video game school, um, Diablo 3, where I would, what, part of my composing process was I would record like electric guitar licks, and I was using a like a 60s style fuzz sound, because right. that, actually that sound blends really well with an orchestra. And I would record that and then flip it around, play it backwards, and find the interesting bits and then would double like double that with a an English horn and then you know add orchestra to that but creating melodic elements out of random things but but i think that you know when you take like side 2 of abbey road which is you know basically a, a sequence of of unrelated song, fragments right. of songs incomplete songs but creating a context where they make sense and I think that's where the artistic genius comes in is is to be daring enough and talented enough to pull it off not right. everybody can do it when you've uh, Lawrence's albums by the way you can get it at lawrencejuber.com or you can just stream me very nice that's where most people are consuming music these days, but I'm happy to sign a CD and put it in the mail if you want. <laughs> yeah, I, you listen, I'm old school. As we talk about, I love, I'm rebuying all my vinyl, your vinyl albums, yeah. nothing else. For all of your streaming, and it's great in the iHeartRadio app, you can create a stream on iHeartRadio, Lawrence Juba, but, but that vinyl album. Um, from you, When you write your own songs, and I love your own constructs, and it's gorgeous, it's lush, did you learn from deconstructing the Beatles songs to play on acoustic guitar. Do you feel you picked up where there are elements of songs that you didn't realize existed, where as you, as you interpret it for a guitar, you go, no, I didn't realize it goes from here to there. Well, it's not just Beatles, it's anything. Because what works for me is where it lives on the guitar, how the melody and the bass interact, and where... I can put that on the guitar to get the maximum sonority, the maximum resonance. Not just sonic resonance, but harmonic and just all, just everything so that it just feels satisfying. Because that's the ultimate thing is, does this satisfy? I've done plenty of arrangements and just discarded them because at the end of the day, it's just not interesting enough. And I've done that with Beatles songs, you know, I mean, of how to arrange it, of where, how to use it, because sometimes the record really does transcend the core musical material. And I, 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 an example of that would be like Uncle Albert, Admiral Halsey, where I did an arrangement of it, and at the end of the day, it was like I just can't beat the record. I can't, <laughs> I can't create a guitar space that that is as satisfying as that. Uh, it's something we did a couple of podcasts ago talking about our favorite Beatle covers and people interpreting it. And my feeling is unless you bring what Lawrence does on uh, LJ Plays the Beatles, LJ Can't Stop Playing the Beatles, <laughs> yeah. is you bring your own emotion to it. The piece is intact, but there's an energy. It might be flamenco. It might be mm -hmm. mournful. It might be more bluesy. Um, it might be a little of a samba beat to it. Uh, if you hear something that we haven't heard, the ultimate example being Joe Conker's Gospel with a little help from my friends. One of my other favorites is Greg Allman with a piano and a church choir doing rain, like a straight-out Southern gospel. It's gorgeous. It's heartbreaking. And as brilliant as he is, Elton's Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds is just a hit song 
to Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, but he didn't find anything in it that I said, oh, wow. I just, oh, this is a hit because you, Elton, singing Lucy in the Sky, you lost the magic of the psychedelic journey of it, but you didn't bring anything else to it. But I think that, you know, there are, have been a lot of Beatle covers over the years, but for me, it's just, actually, it's not even ultimately what satisfies me because Hope, my wife, produces the albums and it's what satisfies her. <laughs> I have to make sure that she's happy. Otherwise, you know, it just, it, it, there's no reason to do it. And and I like the challenge, not just with Beatles, but with anything, with any established, familiar song, of digging into it to find the essence of it and to draw out aspects of it that you might not immediately right. recognize. Right. I love your Crimea River. The things you do in the 30s are absolutely spectacular. I got a whole bunch of those that I haven't recorded They yet. really so work well. I just well. did an arrangement of Willow Weep for Me. What a great song. Yeah, it's funny, just going back, uh, last touch about Construct, you mentioned Uncle Albert, Admiral Halsey, and the critics, you know, sort of rip Paul saying, oh, it's just, it's really beatle it's just like another Beatles song. Yeah. And he and he told the story, he said, I really felt bad, I thought, wow, am I copying myself? And he said, so I really sat down and listened to it again, and went, no, it's, no, it's not. No, it's, it's not a Beatles song. It doesn't it's, exist. Actually, it exists kind of in a completely unique space because it's not a typical McCartney song. Right. The, there are elements, the Lennon-esque elements would be the background talking, the, you know, the characters coming alive. Well, I think you could look at it in, the in, yellow in, in submarine terms of the genre yeah. of being for the benefit of Mr. Kai, you know, the... Right. Um, when I'm 64, the the kind of the music hall elements, the the integrated narrative kind of part of it, and and going back to Live and Let Die, for example, I mean, there is something cinematic about that song because it was written for a movie, yeah, and the way in which the orchestration works and the the way in which you get this sudden gear shift into the bridge, yeah. um, <laughs> it's it, it has a dramatic. Oh, oh God! Yeah. Hey, Paul, you want to write a Bond theme? Yeah, I'll write the best one ever. It's, yeah. it's uh, the, uh, your friend, your former boss, now a com, uh, uh, what is it? A royal, a companion. Companion. He is a royal because, yeah. as I've maintained, the world has simply run out of trophies to give him. <laughs> There's just yeah, you pretty much. He we, got the rhodium disc. He, the rhodium the disc. Guinness book. Yeah. Hey, folks, did you know there are rhodium discs? Because there's just nothing. It's <laughs> yeah. the it's only like, one. <laughs> hey, can we give Paul an award? Okay, you got to make it up because yeah. there's nothing much left. There was a there's a great moment. I don't know if you saw the video of him getting his honorable companion. There's yeah, only 65 in all the UK, and people come up, these uh, lords and famous mm -hmm. people, and you you bow your head, and she puts the mm -hmm. ribbon around your neck, and the queen says something, and you say something, and she nods, and you move on, and the next mm -hmm. one comes, and she says something, and you say something, and you move on, and Paul comes up there. She puts it around his neck, and they just start talking, <laughs> as you and I do at the yeah. diner. How's this? Hey, hey, did you ever see what whatever happened with the thing? Did they fix the plumbing? And they're just talking. And to which my wife, Jane, said, we were watching. She says, why doesn't she just adopt him? Just get it over with. Adopt him and say, Charlie, I love you. Slide over a little bit. <laughs> it's going to be Paul. Yeah. Because can you imagine if there was... Lawrence is from North London. It, it's about lineage. North, North, North London, governor. It, it, now it's lineage and heritage, and that's the monarchy. What if I ask you, like Theresa May does these kangaroo? You do these kangaroo votes of confidence. Mm -hmm. 
What if there was a vote to all of the UK, Charlie or Paul? <laughs> Tuesday, we go to the polls. Yeah, Can you imagine? Yeah, it couldn't happen. <laughs> yeah, it couldn't Monarchy happen because... Doesn't work that way. <laughs> I know, but because if it did happen, yeah. I think you'd see what the vote is. Lawrence Juber from Wings, thanks so much for your time. Oh, you're very welcome. Find you at lawrencejuber.com. And the next time you come back, Lawrence is brilliant at dissecting influences and where things come from. We spent an evening with some fine whiskey going over the Stairway to Heaven controversy <laughs> last year. Yeah, and I just... I like to study music because they, it's enriching. And, you know, I've been going back through history, going back to the Renaissance to mm. find the roots of fingerstyle guitar. Mm. John so Dowland, lute music, oh, the first rock earlier, star. Even earlier than that. Um, uh, way earlier than that. Um, what, 1507 just, is, I have a book. When was the first hit? Out. I mean, in terms oh, of, of what it could, I don't mean like on, you know, uh, of like uh, Stardust. I mean, locally. You're talking about early British Renaissance, it wasn't Tripsichore, it wouldn't have been 1600s. The one of the, in the Renaissance, um, in Spain, there was there were ballads that were really like famous ballads, and one was was one called Gardame Las Vacas, Watch My Cows, <laughs> Watch My Cows, and I'll Give You a Kiss, kind of and that was based on a chord sequence that we call the Passamezzo Antico. And actually, which was evolved into another chord sequence called the Romanesca. And we know that chord sequence because it's green sleeves. Nice. Now, Henry VIII had nothing to do with green sleeves. Got it. Yeah, I mean, even though it's attributed to him. That was a kind of a standard of the era. It was like the, kind of the Meineke 12-bar blues. Got it. As opposed to the... Um, Passamezzo Moderno, which was the major key 12 bar blues of that. Da -da -da -da. Right. Um, but that Passamezzo Moderno still gets used. I mean, I saw her standing there, it's basically that chord sequence. So there were, each era had its own particular hits, but in, in Elizabethan England, John Dowland, or Dolan, it should be because he was Irish. Oh, okay. Um, in fact, Queen Elizabeth thought he was a Catholic spy. <laughs> Might have been. So he didn't really get like elevated fully in the English court to to Paul's level. He didn't. Yeah. He didn't get the Paul treatment. He wasn't. Yes, sir, Sir John Dolan. But he wrote a song called "Flow My Tears." That was that was the big hit of that era. That was yesterday of his era. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah. Anyway, lovely Lawrence, to chat with you. Thank Ken. you so much. You're welcome. Well, it's great having you. Safe travels, then. Eh? All right then, Governor. Right. <laughs> <laughs>